Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the European Council on Foreign Relations podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and today we're having a special podcast on the Eastern Partnership Summit, known by, to most people as the Riga Summit, which will take place on the 23rd, uh, 21st and 22nd of May. I'm very pleased to be joined by three um, experts who will talk us through what to expect from the summit, but also put it into a bigger context of the European Union's relations with Russia and its eastern neighbourhood. First um, person is Kadri Leek, who's a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Also here in London with me is Ian Bond, who's the Director of Foreign Policy at the Centre of European Reform, but also has uh, been a senior diplomat in the British Foreign Office, including, I think, serving in, in Riga. So yep. you can tell, give us a local flavour to the discussions. <laughs> and down the phone, we have Andrew Wilson, who's another senior policy fellow at ECFR and um, not just our expert on Ukraine, but I think one of the world's leading experts on Ukraine. So... Um, why don't we dive straight into it? The Eastern Partnership sounds like a very uh, anodyne and, and bland term. In fact, it was designed to be uh, bland and anodyne. It was part of our, our idea of finding a surrogate for EU membership for the uh, member states, sorry, for the states on the eastern periphery of the European Union as part of the, the European neighbourhood policy. But these summits do have a habit of being less bland and anodyne than they're meant to be. The last Eastern Partnership Summit was in Vilnius. It was meant to be uh, the staging ground for the relatively bland-sounding idea of, of signing association agreements. But it's in fact that, arguably, that was the spark that launched the Ukraine crisis. And since then, we've seen the annexation of Crimea by Russia, a civil war, um, with Russian involvement in eastern Ukraine. In fact, probably be corrected by all of you who will tell me it's not a civil war, it's just a war. Uh, the collapse of the political framework and the EU is also going through a major rethink of how it engages with all of its neighbours. There's an official review led by the European Commission uh, on the neighbourhood policy and there's also a bigger broader foreign policy review, the first phase of which is soon going to be presented by Federica Mogherini. So that's uh, the backdrop to this summit, which is going to take place at a time when I think there's a widespread agreement that our policies towards our eastern neighbours haven't necessarily been a huge success. So what do we uh, expect to come out of, of Riga? What are the big things that people are arguing about? Is it going to be uh, a major event? like Vilnius, or is it going to be a damp squib? Ian, why don't you talk us through what, what you think is, is going to be ha happening there? Well, I think it's more likely to be a damp squib. Uh, there are no big agreements to be signed. And although I think the, uh, the Georgians and Ukrainians are still hoping that they might be able to record some progress towards uh, visa-free access to the EU, uh, from the, the progress reports that the Commission has presented, it's pretty clear that the, the Commission is saying, well, OK, yeah, you're making progress, but you are n not really um, anywhere close to getting visa-free access to the EU yet. Um, so, you know, they're being sent away to do their homework on, on that. And that really would have been the one big deliverable. The rest of it, 
uh, you know, there is some interesting stuff if you are into the digital single market and so on. Uh, there's probably going to be some stuff on uh, energy security and so on. But this is not going to be one of those big sort of make or break occasions as Vilnius w- was. So Kadri, I think you're heading to, to Riga um, and you've certainly been involved in talking to the Latvians about the preparations for it. Edgar Rinkevich, the Latvian Minister of Foreign Affairs, has called it a survival summit. What does what does that mean? What do you do you think that Ian's right about the modest aspirations? What and what are people arguing about? What are the big kind of uh, disagreements going to be at, at Riga? Yeah, well, I think the ambition is really pretty uh, basic in the sense that Latvia wants the message to be that Eastern Partnership is alive and worth keeping. At the same time, it needs to be changed to uh, take into account the different needs of different countries, different aspirations. Uh, So there needs to be a more tailor-made approach, but the willingness to preserve the overall brand of Eastern Partnership is, is, is there too. What are people arguing about? Well, one uh, division, I don't think it will be reflected in the actual summit declaration, but but what is being talked about is whether there should be membership perspective at the end of the tunnel or not. Everyone is trying to learn the lessons of the Vilnius summit and why things went wrong. And one argument is that in order to help uh, countries to reform, you, you should give them certain um, perspective. And the other uh, contentious point is, of course, Russia. Uh, How to deal with Russia, because it's obvious that Russia is meddling uh, on Eastern Partnership area. Russia has its own designs for these countries. uh, And what should the EU make of it? And and there you can really see different views. Uh, Some people say that Russia's concerns should be taken into account, that we need a new deal with Russia, or or even some sort of compromise over customs union and DCFTA, which is the Eastern Partnership Free Trade uh, Arrangement between EU and the EAP countries. Uh, And others say that basically what we need is a softer version of containment policy, that talking with Russia makes no sense at this point. And we will just need to wait until Russia itself realizes that its aggressive policies lead to only disaster. So, Andy, you've been looking at it a lot from the other side, from what Ukraine and other partnership countries expect from it. What what do you think they're going to Riga expecting? Are they coming with high hopes? Well, um, I certainly don't think there'll be any fireworks this time. I mean, last time Russia had a sort of kind of grand initiative that it wanted to sabotage. Now it sees a policy which is uh, which has tied itself in knots. Um, Anodyne and bland suits, suits Russia perfectly well, and the Commission's review is aiming at well, I don't know, Anodyne plus bland plus. Um, the problem is that the. Uh, the EU view of the Eastern Partnership policy seems to be the same as its view of Ukraine, um, alive and worth keeping. Um, if, if that's our policy for Ukraine, then it's not very ambitious. The Ukrainians clearly want more. Um, actually, they want more outside the framework of the policy, um, which is kind of where we are already um, in terms of tiny steps towards um, some kind of help with security, uh, macroeconomic assistance, 
Uh, we've already, in some ways, recognised that the problem in Ukraine is much, much bigger than the kind of partnership in COVID. So going beyond the partnership, really, I think, is what Ukraine wants. So maybe we should stick with security for a bit, because that's obviously the big backdrop to the uh, summit is what's happening in Ukraine. Conflict resolution in the region is one of the formal agenda items at Riga. What does what can you actually achieve in that kind of format? And how far is the EU willing to actually do more on that? I mean, historically, the EU has occasionally done some quite important things on conflict resolution. Sending a border mission to, to Moldova was quite a big deal. Sadly, failed to send one to, to Georgia, which I think might actually have aver averted the conflict in 2008. I mean, obviously, we won't ever know now. But um, on Ukraine, there's been a deep reluctance to, to, to do anything at all on the, on the security front through an EU uh, prism. Is that something which is, which is changing? Are people hoping to, to change that at Riga? I don't think there's any sign of that changing. I mean, the Germans are resolutely against doing anything that sounds as though it might lead to military involvement of any description. Uh, and I don't see any enthusiasm. If there is any enthusiasm, it is in particular countries, and they'll probably do it in a NATO framework or through a sort of coalition of the willing with the, with the US, which is already offering some military training in Ukraine, as indeed is the UK. Um, so, I mean, regrettably, I don't see the EU really stepping up its involvement in, in conflict resolution in the region. Uh, what it could do, perhaps, is to offer some more assistance to the OSCE for the OSCE monitoring mission in, uh, in eastern Ukraine. Um, but again, you know, talking to, um, to, to Western diplomats, uh, just the practical side of finding enough people who understand conflict and have Russian language skills to be able to deploy them into these situations is, is quite a challenge at the moment. A lot of the people that used to do this sort of thing 10 or 15 years ago for the OSCE um, have moved on to other things. So the other joke that people often make about, well, Relic Shikorsky used to say that the problem with the Eastern Partnership is that we don't have any Eastern partners. Um, Ukraine obviously wants to be a partner, but apart from Ukraine, what's the you know what does the situation look like? Kadri, we were in in Minsk recently, and they were looking forward to to being allowed to return to the the fray in a way and to be part of the the Eastern Partnership Summit. But the situation, you know, if you look at the six countries, is uh, at best uh, glass half full, I think, in these different places, and that would probably be a very generous way of describing their attitude towards the EU. But what do people kind of hope um, could come out of this, given the, the kind of fragile state of, of Moldova and Georgia, Belarus, obviously um, still political prisoners there, Azerbaijan's not exactly going down a very strong European route, seems to be a political tightening there. Armenia um, is obviously very clearly in the Russian sphere of influence in a way that that um, some of the other countries are, are not. Actually, I'd challenge that, Mark. Um, and one of the things about the Armenians, they were strong-armed into joining the uh, Eurasian Economic Union. Uh, but they are negotiating, they're trying to negotiate essentially the association agreement that they were negotiating before with the EU, but minus the trade provisions that they are no longer allowed to have because they're inside the Eurasian Economic Union. Uh, so the Armenians are in a very uncomfortable position. 
but uh, there is a sense there that they don't want to be 100% uh, reliant on Russia, uh, particularly because they see that you know, Russia plays both sides in their conflict with Azerbaijan. The Russians are the main arms suppliers to Azerbaijan and to Armenia. So, you know, if you're an Armenian, you don't want to be in a position where you're always 100% dep- dependent on Moscow. Yeah. I think actually there is quite interesting development that has happened in, in with the Eastern partners because earlier the situation that we had, we had societies that demanded more rule of law and elites that couldn't or didn't want to provide it. And that created a tension because the EU can work with the elites. It's very hard to work directly with societies because then you end up actually confronting the local elites. As sort of happened in Ukraine towards the end of Yanukovych era, the EU was clearly siding with the society against Yanukovych elites. Uh, but now, uh, also the elites in most countries, maybe minus Azerbaijan, are worried about their independence and the request that they put forward, and often very clearly, is that please help us preserve our independence and sovereignty, even though we might not come democracy by your definition anytime soon. I mean, that was the message that we got very honest, I would say, in, in Minsk. And, and that is a new challenge to the EU, because that's a legitimate request, but our policies are not tailored to that. Our policies were focused for more, slogan was more for more. So, you know, the more you democratize and modernize, the more you will get from the EU. So we need to somehow solve that dilemma. And I think actually that also will, the answer we will give will show something about the EU. Will we be the sort of technocratic power who tries to spread good governance on fertile soil? Or will we try to take uh, the role of a more geopolitical actor and uphold the principles of OSCE-based order in Europe? So that is actually a big decision for the EU. But the risk will not, I think, be answered in Riga. That's a more long-term process. So Andy, you've just written a paper actually arguing for that sort of shift in our policy towards Belarus called... um, from sanctions to summits, Belarus after the Ukraine crisis. What does that actually mean? If you did want to go down this more geopolitical route, um, how would you do that? How do you also make sure that you don't simply encourage crackdowns and uh, more aggressive behaviour under the cover of uh, the geopolitical crisis that we're all facing? Well, Belarus is facing that geopolitical crisis too, and that's what's new. It's in cyclical trouble with its economy, but it's been there before. Although every phase in that cycle tends to be a little bit worse than the last one. Just like Ukraine, they're seriously short of money. Um, But what's different this time is Belarus is in the Eurasian Economic Union. It's not really providing the benefits they expected. But the real game changer has been uh, Russia's aggression towards Ukraine which has unsettled all of Russia's neighbours, you know, friend and foe. Uh, and Belarus sees it at the sharp, itself at the sharp end, uh, either of a kind of spread of similar bottom-up protests from uh, Ukraine to Belarus, or more likely, uh, given that the population is largely quiescent, uh, of similar types of Russian pressure uh, on Belarus. Also because indirectly, Russia is asking Belarus to help with pressurizing Ukraine. Uh, Lukashenko just said no to kind of joint maneuvers to kind of uh, intimidate Ukraine on its northern flank. Um, 
So Lukashenko is worried about Russian pressure, um, which is why he's making limited overtures to us. So the question for the EU is whether to respond, how to respond. It's not like previous uh, periods of limited rapprochement that we've had Belarus, when there was some hope of domestic liberalisation that isn't really there at the moment. In fact, in many ways, the opposite because of Lukashenko's security concerns. Sanctions should probably stay on. Um, they can be used as a, a means of encouraging the kind of backsliding dangers, sorry, uh, discouraging the kind of backsliding dangers that you were talking about. But if we see geopolitical advantages in supporting Belarus and thereby supporting uh, Ukraine, um, we can we can. You know, we can talk with the Belarusians, but we shouldn't be naive this time. It's not about internal democratization. So um, I'd like to go into a bit more detail on, on Ukraine afterwards, but maybe before we do that, um, we know that there's this review going on. It doesn't sound like it's going to be anything very radical happening in Riga. It does sound like it will be the survival summit that the Latvians are talking about. But if each of, maybe you, each of you could give us your one-minute manifesto on what a new Eastern partnership should look like if you were... If you could bend Commissioner Hahn's ears for a minute and tell him how to reinvent the, the European neighbourhood policy, particularly the Eastern Partnership, what would it look like? I'd say more differentiation. I mean, I, I slightly disagree with Andy about uh, Belarus. I think we could recalibrate the, um, the sanctions because they are clearly disproportionate uh, in terms of how heavy they are on Belarus and how light they are on Azerbaijan, which actually has a lot more political prisoners and, and is probably at the moment a lot more repressive as a society. But generally, you need a, a differentiation between uh, essentially Georgia, Moldova and Ukraine, all of which are actively seeking a, a European perspective, an EU membership perspective, and the other three, none of which is, uh, is actively seeking that. So I would be saying to Commissioner Hahn, concentrate more of your resources, your political effort on keeping Georgia, Moldova, Ukraine going in the right direction. Um, don't spend much money on the other three, particularly not on governmental programmes that are not of direct benefit to the EU. I mean, there's a bit too much sort of we must let the partners lead the way on what it is that they want from the what assistance they want from the EU and the result of that is that you know you end up doing things which are more in their interests than they are in the interests of the EU so that that would be my message to it. Kadri what's your manifesto for a new eastern partnership? Yeah well I think actually I have um, two different manifestos depending on <laughs> who is my audience <laughs> Uh, I, I, I think uh, when I talk to the Eastern partners themselves, I, I feel my Estonian background uh, playing a role and I would urge them to take what there is out there and make it into a membership perspective. Uh, Estonia had no perspective whatsoever in the early 90s. And it was the society itself that got its act together, transformed its politics, institutions, everything, and made itself a candidate country. So get on your bike, that's what you're saying. Basically, yes. <laughs> uh, then again, 
on European level, that sort of message often serves as an excuse to reluctant countries to do nothing and not to provide the sort of help and support uh, that they could. So uh, I keep silent about <laughs> that slogan <laughs> when I talk to Germans, Italians, <laughs> Spanish. And, and then on, on, on that level, I would argue that See, what is happening in risk countries is a natural process. Risk countries got their independence semi-accidentally in the early 90s. It was hijacked by corrupt elites. Now societies are maturing and they are basically demanding their countries back. It is a slow process, but it's inevitable and it's not our doing and we cannot undo it. And it's bound to lead to tensions with Russia. And we are bound to side with the societies because there is just no other way for us. So we should accept it. We should prepare long-term strategy and we should try to help risk societies really to be break through that bottleneck, make their countries their countries. Andy, what's your manifesto? Well, differentiation is still a very technocratic word. <laughs> we need to have three countries in this unholy trinity of Moldova, Ukraine and Georgia. Yes, there are dangers to over-concentrating on just Ukraine. Uh, there is democratic backsliding in Georgia, for, uh, in Moldova, for example. <laughs> Different problems in Georgia. But, yeah, this really is all about Ukraine. Ukraine's at war, it's collapsing, it's under threat of Russian aggression. Yeah, you know, really, we ought to be able to come up with something more than merely technocratic solutions. Um, I think I once said uh, that uh, the Eastern Partnership against Russia was like Brussels taking a baguette to a knife fight. Yeah, it's still a pretty unequal uh, policy set. So why don't we? That's that's great. We'll make sure that Commissioner Hahn gets these manifestos. Um, but uh, why don't we end by going a bit more deeply into the the Ukraine question? Um, Andy, do you want to just carry on a bit further? Because you're saying that it is really all about Ukraine, and I think certainly. The, the stakes there are incredibly high and um, a lot of us have been in, in Ukraine uh, quite recently and the sorts of things which which President Poroshenko and others kind of mentioned to us when we met them um, don't even seem to be anywhere near the agenda of the, the Riga summit. I mean, he was talking about peacekeepers and... Um, it looked like the it look, does look like the economy is hanging by a thread. Um, uh, Andy, do you want to tell us exactly where um, we're at with Ukraine? Because it's not been as much in the news in, in recent weeks as it, as it was earlier in the year. Which is part of the problem, and Russia exploits our um, attention deficit disorder. Um, well, we have a military situation to stabilise, first and foremost. Uh, it's not stable. Uh, the risk of um, further escalations uh, or even... Uh, um, Territory grabs are ever present. Uh, secondly, the the diplomatic format that we have, the so-called uh, Normandy format, doesn't really uh, suit the scale of the problem. It's basically Germany plus France. France is there for uh, I don't know diplomatic cover. Uh, Germany has changed a lot in its policy over the last year, um, but Merkel is is now under considerable domestic pressure even to try and um, hold the line 
for a kind of balanced policy towards Russia and Ukraine than she has at the moment. So I think Germany needs more support in that process. Uh, I'd like to see Brit Britain in. I'd like to see other states like Sweden or Poland helping as ancillaries, or maybe even some role for the US. Um, the biggest question of all is how how serious, how powerful is the reform drive at home in Ukraine? You can see patches of improvement. Um, there are some good ministries. There are some ministries run by foreigners. There are some areas where the pressure of the IMF is working. But that isn't happening across the board. There's no real single reform party or ideology or, or um, something uniting uh, the government to kind of get things right across the board. Well, the opposite, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of fighting between Poroshenko and Yatsenyuk and... Um, the whole deoligarchization question, which everyone talks to you about when you go there, doesn't. It's not entirely clear how that's proceeding. Yeah, I mean, it's a nice word, um, but we're certainly not seeing a situation where these guys are being removed. Uh, you have a certain recalibration of the rules of the game. Uh, certain types of theft, egregious theft from the budget, are being dealt with. Um, but not the kind of general oligarchical structure of the country, which reaches into government, uh, and it reaches pretty close to the guys you two just mentioned. Well, so one of them is an oligarch. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think we should ask or be too unrealistic in what we ask of Ukraine. I mean, you know, they we're asking them to make fundamental reforms and win a war or at any rate stabilize a war at the same time and we're offering them remarkably little for a country that sits on the borders of several eu states and whose collapse would be a catastrophe for europe uh, so i do sometimes think that you know we we um the, there's that old management phrase about um, building the plane while you're flying it you know, we're we're asking the Ukrainians to build the plane while they're flying it, and while the Russians are seeking to dismantle the bits that the Ukrainians have built, uh, and that's a pretty tall order if you're not getting an enormous amount of help from your Western partners. That's true, but basically that means that we're subsidising Ukraine in order for it to survive, which I guess is worth doing. But it would be so much better if we could hope for more. Yeah, but it would be so much more expensive if we fail to subsidise it and it fails to survive. I mean, you know, if you look at the if you look at the costs of, um, as it were, rebuilding the Balkans over the last twenty years, uh, the costs of of doing the same for Ukraine would be absolutely extraordinary. Uh, so you know, you you got forty whatever it is, forty two million people there. Um, our, our effort is not really commensurate with the scale of the challenges. And yeah, sure, they have to do most of the heavy lifting. Um, but if we merely sort of view this as an interesting scientific experiment, uh, we're going to regret it in a few years. Yeah. But you implying that there, there's a danger of a civil war as kind of violent and as aggressive... Because I mean, well, the, I don't think it's a civil war. Well, that's the point. That's why it's not going to be like the Balkans. I mean, the Balkans was they were the indigenous players who were kind of fighting out against each other. You had ethnic cleansing in different parts of the country. I mean, what's happening in you, Ukraine seems to be quite a different dynamic. You, you did, but you've got to remember that that came from a bunch of very unscrupulous leaders. 
manipulating their populations. Yeah. You know, I mean, Bosnia in particular yeah. um, was a, a highly multi-ethnic mixed yeah. community. Absolutely. Torn apart by people who very consciously played on, you know, you are with us, they are other. And what I fear is that actually, it, you know, you see this with the Russian media campaign, that's precisely what's being done, is that manipulation of populations. But it so doesn't that, seem to be working. I mean, the opposite seems to be happening in Ukraine, well, you're getting a kind in of the national area, identity forged. In the areas that are controlled by Russia, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, you know, it's um, an interesting question. Um, yeah, so um, you have um, Russia in control of partially in control of Crimea and half the Donbass. There's still plenty of problems with the Crimean Tatars saying Crimea. That's part of the kind of ethnic tension picture. Um, butting up against a, the rest of Ukraine, which is more united and more patriotic. And that's not a scenario that's a, that's a win for Russia in the long term. So the danger is that Russia will try and destabilise uh, the successes that Ukraine has uh, had in terms of winning the loyalty of regions like Dnipropetrovsk and Kharkiv, and of making some steps um, in the direction of reform. So the more successful Ukraine is, the more likely Russia may be to try and disrupt that success. I think we're running out of time, so maybe come to you, Kadri, for the last word on, on Ukraine. Um, you've written um, about the, the diplomatic uh, front in Ukraine as well, where... You know, even there are questions that Ian and Andy raised about how much money we're giving to Ukraine, how much kind of military support we're giving to them in this war. But the the front where the EU should, uh, because it's relatively cost free, be more active is on that diplomatic front. How helpful are we being on that? Not really. Uh, yes, I, I wrote about it and I think EU should have a much clearer strategy. Right now we are just somehow trying to muddle through and hoping that things will somehow fix themselves and that by some miracle uh, Minsk agreements will become a proper political process that will lead to sustainable uh, peace, which I think cannot be taken for granted at all because the aims of Russia and Ukraine remain fundamentally different for the time being. And and Minsk is, is only a measure to de-escalate uh, in areas where their aims happen to coincide for maybe tactical reasons. But I think Russia's overall aim is still to gain leverage over Kiev's decision making. And for as long as it sees Minsk as a useful vehicle, it will stick to its letter and try to impose its own interpretation of it on us. And this is where we should be a lot more active and have our own interpretation and try to tailor our policies uh, accordingly. Uh, but overall, when I was listening to your conversation, it's, um, it's an interesting question whether there is danger of failed state emerging or, or not. And exaggerating a little bit and, and maybe being somewhat provocative, I would say there is, but not necessarily in Ukraine, but in Russia. Because the, the sort of propaganda war and hunt for enemies is, is, is launching such toxic rhetoric in Russia that I'm actually a lot more worried about Russia than Ukraine that has a fairly healthy society these days. Well, that's a whole extra podcast, I think, the, uh, the danger of a failed state in Russia. 
We've been talking about Ukraine as if it's uh, the subject, uh, sorry, the object of European policies and looking at what we can do with it. I'm really excited to announce that next week, I think, we're going to be publishing um, an essay collection which does something quite unusual on Ukraine, which is to treat Ukraine as the the subject. Andy has edited a collection of essays on what does Ukraine think, written by a lot of leading Ukrainian thinkers. Um, so we uh, we'll put links up to to that on the on the website. Takes us to the the, the final kind of segment in our podcast, which is um, uh, the bookshelf segment. So. Um, Andy, tell us what you're reading at the moment. Um, I'm reading a book by Sergei Plokhi, uh, The Last Empire, The Final Days of the Soviet Union. So it's about another failed state, the USSR. Uh, but it's a fascinating study of its last six months. It's very timely because there are now so many myths spun about this. You know, America plotting to destroy the Soviet Union. Uh, it's involuntary dissolution, blah, 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 blah. Um, Plochy shows uh, in great detail how America in particular, this is Bush the Elder as president, uh, was uh, in fact extremely worried about the consequences of Soviet dissolution and worked quite hard to um, prolong the life of the Union and uh, uh, ensure a soft landing. Uh, leaving very much the decision making up to the locals which is basically the russians and the ukrainians so all sorts of interesting parallels now um about how they uh, rubbed each other up the wrong way at the time um though it does actually go on to 1992 when bush made the possible mistake of turning triumphalist during the uh, 1992 american election campaign to boast about winning the cold war um this was you know 25 years ago but the consequences are still very much with us Great. And it's just in paperback. Wow, in paperback as well. Kadri, what, what are you reading? <laughs> well, I, <clears throat> I would want to give another heads up to another, um, it's not exactly an essay collection, but we are publishing a collection of views from Eastern Partnership countries and European countries about your uh, Eastern Partnership for the Riga Summit. I think taken together they will add up to a very thin book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so keep uh, keep eyes open early next week. Uh, but other than that, I actually opened again a very thick book by Isaiah Perlin called uh, Proper Study of Mankind. Every now and then I have a feeling that many of our problems uh, have roots in, in how we the Western societies arrange our own life. We are not living the standard that we are preaching. And so I'm trying to get back to basics, and I thought that Isaiah Berlin might be of help. He's Latvian as well, isn't he? Oh, yeah, he's he came from Riga. Came from Riga, yeah. <laughs> so very appropriate, <laughs> doubly yeah. appropriate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Ian, what, what is, what's on your bookshelf? Uh, I'm, I'm reading Karen Derwish's Putin's Kleptocracy, Who Owns Russia? And uh, if you are in any doubt about the nature of the regime that we are dealing with, uh, this is a must-read. Unfortunately, barely available in the UK (laughs) because of our libel laws. Uh, But it shows in great detail. So could we get sued for mentioning it? (laughs) <laughs> That's a good question, but we I think it's, to, it's, it's... We might have to publish this podcast out of one of our other offices. Yes, doesn't have insurance. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> then I, I will use the word allegedly. <laughs> so you're allegedly reading this book. Uh, and I, I would say that it, it shows how allegedly uh, Putin and the, the group of leading figures who are still around him have since the uh, 
before the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, been looting the money of first the Soviet Union and then Russia, uh, and how this explains a lot of what has happened since, including why the democratic experiment of the early 1990s fell apart. Wow, that sounds fantastic. So I, there's been a lot of log rolling so far, but I'm going to kind of add to it even further because I, I want to recommend a trinity of uh, pieces written by, well, in fact, one by Kadri, one by Andy, and one by Gustav Gresser. But I, I want to sp- I'll spare their bl- spare I'm them their blushes. So I'll mention myself. <laughs> <laughs> Ian actually did a great paper uh, quite recently on um, on the gas uh, on sanctions. On sanctions, yeah. exactly. So uh, I'll recommend that as well. But these three papers look at the three battlefields on which Ukraine, uh, the the fight for Ukraine is going to happen. So um, Gustav Gressel wrote about the military options, Kadri about the diplomatic battle, and Andy um, about the economic pressures. And I think that if you read them together, it gives you a sense both of how kind of difficult the the challenges are going to be, but also on, you know, how this really is three-dimensional chess that that is being played out. right on the borders of Europe. So that brings this podcast um, to an end. Um, From Ian Bond, Kadri Leek, Andrew Wilson and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye for now. The editor of our podcast is Katerina Botel.